HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, it was interesting. I was riding the subway on the way to the studio this morning, and I looked up, and a new ad I hadn't noticed before. There were two little cartoon figures in their underwear, jumping up and down saying, we're hungry. And then they said, well, we don't have on a shirt, no shoes. And I said, no problem. We can pick up our phone and order it on our iPhone or smartphone or go to our computer and order it online and have it delivered to our door. And I thought, well, how things have changed. We don't have to think that far back before we had online ordering of food. But we think back about um, you know, how, how long ago did we not have wonderful green markets. The green markets in New York City have just grown by leaps and bounds, and we're very fortunate to be able to access them and... Indeed, we have choices today. We can go to supermarkets, gourmet stores, green markets. Um, a lot of them are driven by economic uh, factors, whether what we can afford to buy. But the choices are there. And it wasn't always that way. In fact, uh, in the early 19th century, New York was growing by leaps and bounds. If I can find some figures here between... 1790 and 1860, the population in New York City rose from 30,000 to 800,000. So the big question was, how do we feed all those people? Uh, There were markets, and the markets um, were serving the people, but then as the population grew, problems grew, and the problems with the market had to do a lot with the regulations of the markets and, and having more free markets to serve the people in outlying areas. And these changes affected the residents' access to food and to their living standards. So I decided to look into this and see how does this compare to what we're dealing with today and what is the history of the markets in New York City. And it's not just the markets in New York City. It's a study of, of markets of any uh, urban area 
but New York City was a perfect model to study. And my guest today is Gerig Lee Bayich. Gerig Lee Bayich. Bayich. Okay. Bayich. Bayich. Okay. I'm going <laughs> to blow that every time. I'm sorry. Boring. Okay. Gerig Lee Bayich. Um, Gergli is a, an assistant professor of history and urban studies at Barnard College, and he has done uh, some wonderful research, which hopefully will come out in a book one day soon, and that's called Feeding Gotham, A Social History of Urban Provisioning, specifically from 1780 to 1860, and how we fed all those people in one compact area. Welcome, Gergo. Thank you very much for having me. So, uh, markets in New York City, I mean, New York City, obviously, was a good, a good model for you to study, right? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, New York City is, uh, is an extremely interesting um, case. It is the single fastest-growing city uh, of the Western world at the time. Its population, just as you said... I got those figures from you, yes. (laughs) Those figures are are correct. Its population increasing from about 30,000, which is a significant but relatively small uh, city in the Atlantic world at the time. And over basically what is seven decades, it increases to 800,000, and soon it will be in the millions by uh, the later 19th century. So we're talking about an extraordinary rate of urban growth of course, fueled by, uh, first and foremost, by immigration, but also uh, natural growth. Right. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, under these conditions, uh, you do have to worry about uh, supplying food uh, to residents. And here I would like to stress not only uh, in terms of having uh, access to sufficient quantities of food, but what is uh, also a very important issue is somehow monitoring quality that is ensuring that food um, is of uh, good quality uh, right. to our residents, right. right? And the other issue about uh, about New York City uh, that makes it a good case study is a very funny, uh, um, I don't know, historical uh, accident maybe, is that there is actually a butcher in this city, uh, a certain Thomas F. Devo, himself a butcher working at one of the city's markets, uh, from, I believe, the 1830s, if I recall well. He's at Jefferson Market, working for decades um, as a market butcher, And he has a passion for the history of uh, New York City food markets. So he actually publishes uh, in 1862 the so-called market book, which is a history of New York City food markets. respect your local butcher. You never know. He might write a book about you. (laughs) Well, this guy, I mean, we have to understand that the butchering is a a heavy-duty physical labor. These guys slaughter uh, cattle and and, uh, animals. They they cut the meat up. I mean, they work up very, very early uh, with the sunrise. By the sunrise, they are at the market with the cut-up meat. So this is heavy-duty physical labor. But then this guy somehow has the energy to do all this incredible research and write a book on the history of New York City food markets. And then a few years later in his market assistant, kind of a guide to uh, New York City uh, food markets for the shoppers of New York City. So, and, and that, of course, generates a very rich uh, documentation, which is available, actually, and uh, this is probably a lot of people would be interested in. It's available, A, these two books uh, published, and the, and the original research materials mm-hmm. at the New York Historical Society. Well, and, that's, it's, um, and this is interesting, because at this time, this period in time, we're talking, keep in mind, we're always talking, you know, late 1700s to the mid-1800s. Red meat was the most important component of the American urban diet, as you stated, right? So the retail trade in this made the marketing, made the history of the markets, and butchers, you know, extremely important. They were the key uh, players. And let's 
So I think it would make it would be useful for me just to lay out the groundwork of how does this system actually work. So it is pretty um, simple. So the uh, and this is not only New York City. This is most uh, American cities that I'm aware of at the time. Um, they have the so-called market laws in the case of New York, which go back to 1683. From that point on, basically, the retail of fresh red meat, fresh red meat being defined, also called as butcher's meat, as beef, veal, lamb and mutton, which is one category for their purpose, and pork, fresh pork, red meat in this case. That's for their uh, analysis or for their interpretation, this can only be retailed, only be retailed by licensed butchers, that is the city issues a license for butchering trade at municipally managed and owned public marketplaces. Now, mm. this may seem as a limited restriction, right, because it only restricts the retail of fresh red meat. And we can talk a little bit about why it's so important. But how does the food market work? The food market is what uh, economists would call an agglomeration economy, right? It's just like a supermarket. You go to the supermarket because you go there and in one turn you can buy all your stuff. You can buy your greens, uh, vegetables, milk, uh, meat, and buy now all the different dry goods and, f- and, 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 and bread and so on. And the same right. thing with a food market. It's just a lot of individual retailers agglomerating in one place. So because something so important as red meat is limited to the public marketplace, that agglomerates the retail of all fresh provisions into these municipally managed food markets. And therefore, basically, the retail of food is really concentrated at a handful of marketplaces across the space mm-hmm. of the city. And the, and I don't know, I mean, how many markets, let's say during this period of time, how many markets were there? We know there was the Jefferson Market, the Washington, I think it was Washington, Washington Market, market was there, the yeah. Catherine Market. Mm-hmm. Um, how many, how many, well, New York wasn't that big. It's a very, very good question, but this is the point that, uh, as where we started, right, that, um, so... Let's take a take a look from the point of view of the of the of the, of the city government, the municipal uh, government, the city council. Uh, city is growing rapidly, mm-hmm. so how many markets there should be is, by definition, a moving target, mm-hmm. right? And so, if you want this system to work well, if you want if you restrict the retail of fresh food at specific locations, yet your city is growing exponentially that is it's literally climbing up the 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 island growing up north right you have to catch up with it and so the number is changing it's always a moving target when i start in the beginning it's um i don't want to say incorrect something like four or five markets and by the 1830s the last new market is built i believe in 1835 if i remember the year yet but something of that range 37 um, and then we're at about 13 uh, mm. markets. And then there are no more public markets built in the city, and we can talk about the issue of well, the deregulation uh, that follows. So it's a moving target. Um, and, well, the, you said that um, – and these were all below 14th Street, correct? These or markets were all uh, located below 14th Street because that's pretty much where we are where at the in lived. the 1830s, right? Right. And then as the city grows further north, we no longer we no longer build uh, public marketplaces. Right. Well, there was – you talked about um, – Rhythms and seasonal fluctuations, as well as supply conditions of of the meat, and how that affected the markets. What can you talk? This about This is that? one of my favorite uh, part of the story. So, um, let me just 
step back for a second and just lay out some of the most important issues which goes back to uh, seasonality. What are here the most important constraints? I mean, we have a public market system, right? We side these different markets. It's also a very interesting question of how that actually works. We place these different markets. But what do we have to worry about? We have to worry about people being able to walk to the marketplace, right? Uh, just think about your own grocery shopping. Imagine if you have to go to the to the grocery store almost every day. Uh, you don't want to walk too far, right? Now, that's the case. There is no refrigeration. There is no uh, electricity at the mm-hmm. time. So there is no uh, proper means of modern refrigeration technologies. What does that mean? And this goes to your question about seasonality. What does that mean? That means something that, depending on the season, you have to go to the marketplace at different frequency. In the summer, you may go each and every market day. Why? Because food perishes much faster in the summer. You don't want to get in trouble with your meat. Uh, And you go six times a week. In the winter, you may get away with going two or three times. So there is that kind of rhythm and seasonality. You don't want to walk much farther than 10 minutes, let's say, um, if you go six times a week. On average, people go about four times a week uh, across the year. And as I said, it's not very, it's very uh, unevenly distributed seasonally. Mm-hmm. And this connects back to seasonalities uh, in the hinterland. So there's a very strong seasonality of how frequently you go, uh, which directly reflects um, issues about refrigeration. But there is a very strong seasonality about the availability of the meat supply, which reflects directly agricultural supply uh, conditions. So how does the food, the the butcher's meat diet uh, work? You have these four principal meats, beef, which people eat the most amount, and it's available all year round. Quite a bit, quite a bit they eat Lots of it. (laughs) These are are, 160 pounds of fresh red meat. Fresh red meat, 160 pounds per capita of fresh red meat. Uh, and about 90 pounds of it uh, is beef. This is a lot of fresh red meat. Uh, this, uh, and uh, uh, I, 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 I love to pick up that, 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 that subject. But So 90 pounds are of the beef, and this is relatively equally distributed. New Yorkers, and not just New Yorkers, people in Philadelphia and Boston and so on, in America's great cities, um, they are very much beef eaters. They have a, they have a great appetite mm-hmm. for fresh beef. Uh, but then... In around the spring, veal comes into season. So the beef, the beef appetite or the beef um, diet is, is complemented by a lot of veal. In around the summer, early, uh, early uh, fall, lamb and mutton. Mm-hmm. And then pork, fresh pork is only eaten in the winter. Right. And they all add up to a relatively even distribution of uh, meat, anywhere in the ballpark of 12 to 18 pounds uh, a month which adds up being about 160 pounds uh, over the year. And this is only fresh uh, red meat. It does not include uh, all the other, uh, you know, salted and... and so on. It doesn't include ham and bacon and sausage and sting. Well, and speaking of fresh, (laughs) it's fresh when it gets to the market. So here we have another fluctuation and rhythm of the market, and that's when do you go to the market to get it? I mean... The early bird catches the worm, right? I mean, the sooner you get there, the fresher your meat's going to be. Absolutely, and I and I I really love that that story because um, if you just take back a th- take a step back to a present day, right? Where you live uh, in New York City today defines the kind of provisioners you have available. You don't get Whole Foods everywhere in the city, and right. you don't get Traders Joe uh, everywhere in the city, and so on. And there is a very obvious reason to that. I don't think I need to uh, talk about that. 
uh, green, and green markets as well and green markets as well right but then it's not the case uh, let's say in 1820 when the public market system works uh, really really well especially these markets uh, the city council manages to distribute these markets relatively evenly across urban space and they very nicely uh, correlate to the relative population density of the city. So there's a good match. So food is distributed uh, in a regulatively egalitarian way insofar as space is concerned. However, and this is the trick, um, inequality does not operate in spatial terms. Inequality operates in temporal terms. When you go defies the quality defines the quality uh, and obviously the price mm -hmm. you pay. And I just, I mean, this is uh, just some personal uh, recollection. I mean, two years ago, I, I lived in Florence in Italy, and it's just really wonderful. It's still how this works. I would do almost all of my fresh food um, in the market about five minutes walk. Exactly. I mean, I was living the, the, the dissertation or the book project that I was working on. I was living it in an everyday life. I would go. And when I went, really defined the kind of the, 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 the variety, you know, the selection and the quality. Mm -hmm. And around noon, when they were about to pack up, the leftovers were sold at low price. And so the wealthier you are, the more likely you go very, very early in the morning. And we know this about, uh, there's a diary and uh, account books of John Pintar, the well-off middle-class person in New York City. And he goes, literally, the first thing he wakes up and runs off to the market to make the choice. Best, the best the produce, best. the best, freshest exactly. meat. The right? best, best and freshest, <laughs> yes. Right. And that's for a higher price. Yeah. So those who know they can get a deal at the end of the day, they wait to the end of the day. They wait at the end of the day and they pick up what uh, these butcher Thomas F. Devoe considered the remnants, uh, the leftovers. And that was poor quality. But, and this is an important thing to take a step back, is refrigeration is the key to understanding this system. That is not refrigeration, the lack Lack of thereof. refrigeration. Uh, because uh, because what, what happens is... In lack of having proper refrigeration, a butcher uh, or anybody selling fresh food at the marketplace, but in particular a butcher, would try to bring about as much meat to the market as he would expect to sell on any given day. Mm -hmm. The leftovers are just sold at a very low price and given away. So a butcher would bring about 150, 200 pounds of meat for the day and would expect to sell the whole things. It wouldn't hold for the next day. Right. And the regulations um, helped that stay, you know, stay so that people were getting good quality meats. And uh, you read some books about markets and you know that they were not necessarily pleasant places, very smelly, stinky, dirty places. Oh, the regulations tried to help keep them clean, but... Uh, I'm sure there were there were problems keeping that up. But then there was a change. Things changed. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the deregulation of the markets and then what happened. Why does it seem so inviting? Autumn in New York. It smells the thrill of first nighting Glittering crowds and shimmering clouds And canyons of steel They're making me feel 
to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. Autumn in New York It lifts you up when you're let down And we are back with my guest, Gergo Bajic. Say it, say it again for me. Gerge Bajic. Gerge Bajic, okay. It's a Hungarian name. It's, and, a, and it's I, a true tongue breaker. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it looks easy on paper. Yeah, but <laughs> okay. um, And we're talking about the urban provisioning and particularly um, using New York City as a model to, to talk about the specifics. So the markets were, were regulated and running pretty well for the population at that time, but then suddenly the population boom hit. And it just wasn't serving the needs of the communities. We had communities developing above 14th Street and east and west, and there were a lot of people who had access to want to sell to these people. Um, so what what happened? What was going? Ah, well, what what? Okay, well, let's take it. Let's take it from the deregulation. Okay. Uh, this is a very uh, interesting and very difficult story to figure out exactly what happens. But I think, I mean, basically the contours are this, that the city is just growing very, very fast. Um, you could make the argument that the so-called market law, the market which people uh, who criticize the market law would call the market monopoly of meat, which is the butcher's monopoly over the meat, uh, it's kind of an unfair uh, privilege, right? Uh, economists would call it some sort of rent-seeking or whatever. But the idea being that it forces other people out from competition. You could make the argument that it artificially increases the retail price of meat and so on and so forth. Well, these butchers have to get certified. I mean, they, they have to get licensed, so well, that's a cost to them. I mean, it was Four, it's six trade. years of apprenticeship. These are artisans. Yeah, these are, these are trade. serious tradesmen and craftsmen. And, I, and, and the more research I've done on this, the more I respect these people, also the more I see that they did have indeed a retail privilege, right? Right. And so... Um, so you could make a lot of argument, but basically I think what happens is that somehow priorities shift. And why exactly that is the case? It's a very long story, but priorities shift. And it doesn't work that way that there are just no markets uh, much further up. There is no markets at all, uh, you know, north, uptown. uptown yeah. And there are uptown, just... Uptown, we're talking like 25th Street. <laughs> 14, uh, north of 14th right. Street, right? It works the way that the commitment of the city... Uh, Wanes and around from around the 1830s, they no longer are as committed to expand the market system. Which is I, what I said that in the under the conditions of rapid urban growth, 
the public market system is some sort of a municipal infrastructure and its uh, its scale and its spatial distribution is by definition a moving target. And the question is, what are the priorities? And somehow this is no longer a priority. And in fact, gradually, and this is really a very complicated history why this is the case, uh, gradually, uh, less and less public markets build. There is more and more uh, unlicensed uh, retail. Uh, mm. We would call it today informal economy or something like that. And there's really loads of it happening at the time. And then eventually at 1843, uh, the city council officially deregulates the meat trade, which means that the market monopoly of meat no longer holds and anybody uh, can just open a butcher shop without any previous training and so on. And so meat shops just sprawl across urban space and they do not, um, they do not uh, kind of um, take over from public market, but they become a parallel system of food retail. And depending on where you live in the city from that point on, it will be a variety of retail options available. There are some areas with still public markets, other areas where no public markets are, just meat shops, some areas where both, then grocers also sell meat. Now, they, of course, don't know anything about meat. That's just not what they do. And then here's also a booming unlicensed, uh, if you wish, informal economy. So it's just a very fragmented system of how retail uh, is being done. Kind of a little chaotic, people not knowing where to shop. And you have word of mouth, you have to trust, you know, who's your butcher? Is it good meat? Did you get sick? Okay, I'll go there. You know, But, but there was a reason it was, and there was a reason that... Um, Another reason that New York City deregulated, or at least lost interest, as you said, lost their commitment to the markets. I mean, they spent a lot of money building a water system. The Croton Aqueduct was built, and they they went into debt. I, I'm trying to make that argument, and I think this is a this is a this this I find personally a very fascinating story. So the question here is: This a supposition on your part? Then um, it is. Uh, I think there is no smoking gun here, uh, but there certainly is an issue that is. Um, when the city decides to build the Croton Aqueduct, uh, their municipal debt is mi- below a million dollars. By the time they finish it, not and not completely finish it, of course, it's also a work in progress, um, but by the time it's basically open, the municipal debt is over $13 million. Imagine that that is a 13 times <laughs> increase, right? Yeah. Uh, now, it's no surprise that for quite a long time, New York City does not make any major infrastructural investment, uh, and the market system kind of is no longer invested. Very, They just don't make much investment from around the mid-1830s. And then, of course, I mean, in the case of rapid urban growth, if you just miss out on expanding this system just a few years, what you have is a lot of unlicensed sales because right. people need meat and food and whatsoever, right? The next major infrastructure project is Central Park, and it's 1857. Mm. So the municipal debt is enormous. So I think what is happening is that priorities shift. And access to food is no longer thought of as a public good, but more of uh, relegated to the free market. Access to water is increasingly being defined as some sort of a public good. Now, why is this happening? It's one story that really fascinates me. Yeah. I, well, water is very important. And water is very important. Yeah. But t- take a step back and think and, that... And commerce markets, that's 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 the market. That, that's free market. That's competition. That's commerce. Yeah. You know, I mean, that 
they will find a, a means to sell and to survive. New York is not as unusual in deregulating retail. Let me just say that cities like Paris do uh, occasional deregulation and so on. But it's very unique in the American case, and this is the real problem here. What is unique in the American case is that deregulation at the level of retail is not systematically complemented by municipalization or socialization mm. at the level of wholesale or slaughtering. So as you deregulate retail of meat and other fresh provisions and grocers and meat shops and whatever, everybody is selling every kind of stuff. At the same time, you completely have no infrastructure whatsoever to monitor slaughtering, wholesaling, any activity. And this is the case well into the early 20th century. Yeah. Oh. And, okay. and it's interesting because we're, we're seeing a lot of that now where it is very regulated and there are, but the practices aren't necessarily well, not enforced, what we would like. like. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, they're, not, they're enforced, I think for the most part, maybe enforced, but the practices have gotten too big. They're, they're too consolidated. Yeah. And um, a lot of us are not so happy about the way that, mm. that it's taking place. And so it's harder for small butchering and slaughtering mm. houses to actually um, survive yeah, uh, because exactly. of the, that regulation. Uh, you, you bring up an, an interesting point, what's called, I'd, and you tell me about it, but <laughs> I was reading about it in your paper, and it's a, a, it just got my attention. It's called, and it's all about this period of markets, and it's called the antebellum puzzle. This describe is, that a little bit. What yeah, do you mean the, by that? This is a literature. Uh, this is a little bit away from food history. This literature, or uh, but this is a literature that fascinates me. This is a literature very much based in uh, economic history and demographic history. Right, and what we observe, and this is very interesting uh, story, is that um, as for indicators of health. Uh, one of the indicators we definitely always use is infant mortality. It's very sensitive mm -hmm. to um, what people often call the biological measures of living or standard of living. Another one is body height, uh, adult male stature, usually because we can usually measure male stature more than female. It's because of conscription uh, uh, data and so on. But what we observe is that in the history of the United States, where we can reconstruct mortality rates and stature, the only period of time when people are literally getting unhealthier, that is having a shorter life expectancy, as well as their stature is declining, that is becoming shorter, literally shorter, it's, we're talking about a few centimeters at mm -hmm. most, is roughly from around the 1830s through the 1860s and 70s. And there are two kinds of explanations. One is that it may have reflect worsening diets, uh, which may be the case of uh, falling meat consumption in general, it's more increasingly expensive uh, food prices. And the other may have to do with uh, disease environments, rapid urbanization, and so, yeah. and so forth. Mm -hmm. And what I'm actually interested in is that so much of the nutritional hypothesis is hooked on the issue of how much is being consumed. And so much of the nutritional, uh, of, the, of, the, of the disease environment thesis looks very much about water and sewerage and tenement conditions and so on and so forth and the communication of disease. And I see looking at the, uh, <clears throat> looking at the food story that there is also a very important issue of food quality here. Uh, that is not, I by no means argue, explains the antebellum puzzle, but given it's a puzzle, there are hundreds and little pieces, and this may be one of the many tiny pieces in this puzzle, That, and this is my argument, but um, it's a work in progress, that what may also be happening is that a lot of cities exactly at this moment in time are giving up their capacity to monitor quality. 
Mm. And um, well, we have. It's interesting because um, the markets came and went again. I mean, history repeats itself. You know, in the in the fifties, whether it was with industrial revolution or what, the the green markets started to disappear. And then it wasn't until, at least in New York City, until the seventies, mm-hmm. that the market structure started to come back. A regulated market, structure, loosely, but you know, but regulated and. We have now in New York City over 36, I believe, mm-hmm. green mar- or maybe 37 by now, green markets um, dotted around the city, and and certainly our uh, the infrastructure is better in the city, and and our health uh, should be better, but much better. Yeah, and and yet we are consuming. You you gave me a figure before the show, uh, compared to the 160 pounds of red meat per year, we're consuming far less than that. We're consuming right? less. Yeah. Uh, about, uh, and I think it's a re- reasonable estimate that back then, easily about 30% of our calories would be coming from meat meat products, if not more. Uh, now, it's uh, I think it's about 20%. And how much of it is processed food, I can't even imagine. I mean, I, this is really a little bit beyond uh, the period I study, but a lot of it is not, of course. The, the issue is uh, and we talk about these issues, food deserts and so on, and the lack of access to good quality fresh food is mm-hmm. becoming a major problem, right? And the green markets are just uh, really a wonderful uh, attempt to bring that kind of uh, relationship back of good quality uh, fresh food, unfortunately at a relatively higher price, so not everybody can afford it. But um, I think this is a very important uh, movement and it's a very important uh, development, and we really should cross our fingers that people will become more and more food conscious. And this is why I'm saying it, that back then, let's say in 1850, a working class family would easily expand over 50% of the household budget on food. Now, I don't know what the rate is today, but it's a fraction of that. So uh, we can really afford to, on, as, a, as a society in general, we can really afford to eat better. It may have not become, it, it may not be a priority, but that's right. a whole different uh, Question, right? We have to care about what we put in our bodies. We have to yeah. buy better food. Um, there's so many choices to make in today's society. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. Well, Garrigo, I, I have truly enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, it was and wonderful. I would, I would Thank love you so to much. talk more and more on this. Um, for those of you in the New York area, he will be speaking um, at the at a presentation of the culinary historians at the end of January. January I'm really 26. looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. And you can check on that schedule coming up at culinaryhistoriansny.org. And until then, I will continue reading more about the markets and hope our listeners have enjoyed this as thank well. Thank you very much for listening to us. Thank and you. thank you for listening. Again, I've been your host, Linda Palaccio, on A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.